Hey, good morning again, everybody. How's everybody doing? Waking up a little bit? Okay. So, uh, quick question. What's your favorite holiday tradition? Any holiday, any tradition. Shout it out. What? An egg toss? Fourth of July egg toss. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> birthday cake on Christmas morning. Is your birthday on Christmas? You do birthday cake on Christmas morning? Nice. Yeah, we should take notes. Anything else? Christmas tree cutting, like cutting down a Christmas tree. Okay. Very cool. Anything else? Christmas spa. Pho. Christmas pho? I've never even thought about having pho on Christmas. That's cool. All right. Interesting. So I didn't expect to hear any of those traditions. <laughs> They're all pretty unique. Um, I don't know if you think about it, but our, our holiday traditions are pretty weird. Those are weird that you just said, but even just the general ones, right? We just said, I mean, Halloween happened last week. I don't know how many of you are big Halloween buffs, but it seems like every year the world we live in, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, I've seen people put out more decorations for Halloween than Christmas by a long shot. It's pretty interesting. But have you ever thought about how weird that would be? If you had no context for Halloween at all, how weird would it be if you just show up and you see a ton of people just walking down the street, mostly little, wearing these weird costumes, knocking on every single door, saying trick or treat and getting candy? It's a little weird, right? In Christmas, why do we cut out, why do we cut down trees and bring them into our house? Just to decorate them, put lights around them, and then we like to put lights outside. It's a little bit weird. Anybody uh, a fan of Jim Gaffigan? Okay, so some of you might be even thinking about where I'm going. So Jim Gaffigan has a, a hilarious bit on holiday traditions, and my favorite is when he gets to Easter. He talks about Easter. He's like, okay, well, what do we celebrate for Easter? Well, we celebrate the, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we celebrate it? We should paint eggs and hide them. He's like, wait, no, hold, hold on, hear me out. There's a bunny. <laughs> it's weird, though. Like, if you don't have any context at all, our traditions are super weird. And you might look at them and be like, why the heck do we do that? Why do we do that? And so, I don't know if, if you know this, but sometimes Christians can do weird things, too. Maybe? Is it just me? Like, <laughs> Christians do weird things. We even did some weird things this morning. We did some really weird things. So we're starting a new series. We're calling us, Why Do We Do That? Why do we do that? And because, I don't, again, I don't know. For some of you, you've, you've spent years and years or maybe your whole life in the church, so you maybe haven't questioned them quite the same. But especially if you're new to the faith, I, I, I became a Christian roughly when I was 16. And I remember just being folded into church culture and being like, oh, that's kind of weird. I'm like, why do we do that? And just, I had no, no frame of reference for it. So that's the whole heartbeat behind this series. It's a four-week series. We're going to tackle four things that we do regularly as Christians, and we're just going to talk, why do we do them? What's the point? Why do we do that? Because, again, we do weird things. Why do we show up on Sunday morning every single week to sing songs together and listen to someone like me or Brian on the stage? Like, why do we do that? Like, I'm not that, I'm not that special. <laughs> I don't know. Why do we do that? Why do we take communion? Why do we, I mean, 
for us as Rock Creek Church, we do it once a month roughly, and we come up and we take these little tiny cracker and a little cup of juice. But why do we do that? Why do we give our finances to the church? You know, there's that fancy old word, tithe, right, which is a tenth, right? Do you, do you tithe anywhere else in life? Does anybody else go to a coffee shop and say, you know, I'm going to put 10% of my income in that tip jar? No, it's kind of weird, right? Is it just me? I'm not getting any interaction. <laughs> so, because if you think this is normal, it, I mean, it's just interesting. We don't see a lot of this stuff in other parts of our life. Baptism is another interesting one, right? We bring up a horse trough up here. We put someone in it. We shove them in the water for a couple seconds <laughs> and bring them back out, and everybody cheers and celebrates. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the onus of this series. For four weeks, we're going to get into some of those things. This morning is our first one, and we're going to get into why do we sing? Why do we sing and do musical worship, right? We just did it for, we sang a couple songs this morning, and uh, we're shifting things around a little bit this morning to, to make it fresh, but why do we do that? Why do we show up and sit and stand in rows and look up to a stage, a band, and we sing out loud these songs that, that we didn't write these songs? Um, okay, well, one of them that we wrote, but uh, <laughs> most of them, it's like, you know, is it a Christian karaoke party? Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Because you can hear these songs whenever you want on Spotify. So we're, getting, we're gonna get into this. Why do we sing? Why is this such a, an integral part of our Sunday morning services? Every single week, we sing. Well, to get there, we gotta start, first start with the question, what is worship? That's the very first question we have to ask because we call what we do on stage, this, 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 these musical sets, we call that worship. Like, hey, let's sing and worship. But that's not all that worship is. Worship is more than that. So what is worship? If you Google it, you would come up with this definition. It, just, it would be to show reverence and adoration for. Typically a deity, a god. That's what you would find on Google. I'm going to give you my definition. This is the way that I've, I've come to understand it and define it the best that I can. Worship is inherently recognizing something or someone as all-important, deserving of my surrender, and living as such. That's what worship is. And if we define it that way, we can really see how we may worship other things, right? You can worship money. You can worship a spouse, a person. You can worship a whole number of things. As, as you look at something and say, this is all important, and I'm going to give everything I can to have this, and I'm going to live that way. That's worship. And if we look at what Jesus says about worship, specifically when we're talking about worshiping God, Jesus says in John 4, verse 23 through 24, he says, but at the time of his coming, God, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. So Jesus, that's, what, that's how Jesus defines it a little bit. What, what kind of worship is God looking for? It's done in spirit and in truth. And spirit, if you want to think about it this way, uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to really think about what does it mean to worship God in spirit. But we have a spiritual dimension to us. We have a spirit, and 
I, honestly, I think our emotions tie very, tie very closely with our spirits. When our spirits align with Jesus and we make sure that we are aligned with him, with his heart, we can worship in, in him in spirit. And then the truth piece is just as important because if you're going to worship in, in falsities, that, that, it's not going to work very well. He's looking for people that are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I'm going to give you an example of when the Israelites didn't do this well. When they were far from God, when they were walking in ways that he did not approve of, when they were rejecting his word, and they were still, quote-unquote, worshiping. This is a verse from Amos chapter 5. Amos is, is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and he is speaking to Israel, God's chosen people, and he says this, from God. These are the words of God coming through Amos. He says, I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So God apparently doesn't like harps. That's why we don't have a harp on stage. No, that's not what this passage is saying. The, um, the onus of this is, is in, in verse 24, right? Amos is saying from the mouth of God, he's saying instead God wants to see a mighty flood of justice because the Israelites were, were not following God at all in their daily lives, but they would still come and worship, go through the motions and sing praises and offer sacrifices, and God is just sitting here like, stop it. I'm disgusted with this because this is not an accurate reflection of your heart. Your heart is not mine. So we have to get that right first. When it comes to worship and singing musical worship, the problem here is not the style of music. It's not the way that they're worshiping. It's not, that's not the problem. The, heart, the problem is the heart behind it. And so for us, this should be a good gut check for us. Because when we come every single Sunday and we sing and we join in this, if our hearts are not right, God could care less. If you're going to come here and praise him with your lips for his love, for his goodness, for his faithfulness, for his forgiveness, but you go back and you are a mean spouse, a mean parent, you're a mean neighbor, you're selfish, you're controlling, and you're not willing to deal with your sin, God could care less what happens here. So we've got to start there. Our heart has to be right. And we see this a glimpse of this with Jesus he says this in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells his followers, he says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar, very popular way of worshiping God for the Jews, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You see where Jesus' priorities are. If something is not right in your life, specifically with another person, specifically if there is not reconciliation in a relationship, Jesus says, I would much rather you go take care of that first. There's nothing wrong with the sacrifice, but there's a priority. That God wants us, our hearts, to mimic his. So if you're angry at someone, if you're holding a grudge against someone, or if you've wronged someone and have not made it right, 
Jesus' preference, would you go, go take care of that first and then come worship? It's the heart. It's the heart that matters to God. And so with this in mind, I also want to point out that worship goes far beyond music too. Like almost anything can be an act of worship. Not everything, but almost everything. Um, if your heart is right, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You can do anything, whatever you do, anything in your life that you do actively, do it for God's glory, period. So worship can take a lot of different forms, right? The, the Jewish people offered a lot of sacrifices. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus is our once-in-a-lifetime sacrifice for all of time, period. It's done. But that was a way that they would worship him. But you can worship God through music. You can also worship God through dance, through art. You can worship him by praying or doing acts of service. If you go out of your way to serve someone else, that's an act of worship. You can give financially. You can read the Bible. You can fellowship. You can just simply, whatever he tells you to do and you walk in obedience, that is worship. Because it's about your heart. The more that Jesus gets a hold of your heart, the more you walk in line with him, the more you can worship him in spirit and in truth. So I just had to get there first, right? But if that's the case, if, if worship is so much broader than just singing, okay, well, then what's the big deal about singing? What's the big deal? What's so important about it? Well, let's, I want to get into a little bit of history. Um, something that I, I, I mourn sometimes in the modern church is that sometimes we just have lost so much touch with history. And there's 2,000 years of extremely rich history of the Christian church. And then also realizing that the Jewish faith is our heritage as well. You go much older than that. There's a lot of rich, rich history that if we don't embrace, we can miss some things. We can miss some really good things. But if we look at the Christian faith and our roots in Judaism, the Christian faith has always been a singing faith. Always. It's always been that way. And you might be sitting here and being like, okay, that's, that's a terrible argument. Like, it's not necessarily good to do something just because you've always done it. But I want to draw this out because, because we see it's so inextricably linked with the faith throughout its entire history. You can't separate it. As much as you would like to, I mean, anybody in this room hate to sing? Be honest. It's okay if you hate to sing. Anybody? Really? There's a hand over here? Okay, cool. Christians are singers. That's okay to be honest, right? I mean, how many of you feel, would feel comfortable if I called you up right now just to sing a solo? You know? Right? Hunter, you want to come up? You don't want to, but would you? Really? No, okay, I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> He's testing me. <laughs> All right. But the Christian faith has always been a singing faith. I want to give you a handful of examples. Israel, the, the nation of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament sang constantly. Exodus 15 is the very first song recorded in Scripture, and it's right after the Exodus, right after that story where God delivered Israel, the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He parts the waters of the Red Sea. Israel walks through to safety, and then he closes it up again on the Egyptians. Pretty crazy story. But then when you see what, what they sing about, what does their song look like? Well, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed 
gloriously. That sounds like a good song. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. Oh, okay. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. So it's pretty good so far. Pharaoh's chariots and armies he has hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. I don't know if we should start singing about God drowning people in church or not. The deep waters gushed over them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Can you imagine singing this? It, it kind of reminds me of, of childlike singing, right? Teddy's in this phase right now. He's almost five years old where he'll just sing about whatever the heck he wants to all the time. And it's, it's, it's really cute. It's really, we love it. But I wonder if there's a level of, of childlike response when we just sing, when we break out in song because God has done something so awesome, so miraculous, and it's like, we're just going to sing about it. So Israel sang, and a lot of their songs are just like that. God does something amazing, and they just sing about it. Jesus and his disciples sang. Matthew 2630 is an example. Right after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, right? What we just practiced for the first time Jesus did that, right afterwards, we're told that they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his disciples sang. They did it regularly. The early church sang in Acts 16.25 when Paul and Silas are in prison for sharing the gospel. We see that it says around midnight, so it's also late, <laughs> Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. The cool story about, the cool part of that story is as they're singing, the earth shakes and the prison doors just fling open and God just says, ah, jailbreak. <laughs> like dodgeball. I don't know if it was like that. Um, and then beyond that, we're also taught in scripture that creation itself sings. Creation itself sings. First Chronicles 16, 31 through 34 says, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Tell all the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. So we see singing is all over the place. And we can also point to musical instruments and musicians. That's also very key, very important. It's something that I really appreciate as a, mus as a musician and a guitar player, um, I love that, that God has gifted us with music and he's given us a platform to use our gifts and our skills to worship him with that. In 1 Chronicles 25, uh, verses 1, and then it has some other details that aren't terribly important, so I'm going to jump ahead to verse 6. It says, David and the army commanders then appointed men from the families of Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, I'm saying that right. Jedithan to pro proclaim God's messages to the accompaniment of lyres, of harps. Okay, God does like harps. And cymbals. All these men were under the direction of their fathers as they made music at the house of the Lord. Their responsibilities included the playing of cymbals, harps, and lyres at the house of God. Asaph, Jedithan, and Haman reported directly to the king. They and their families were all trained in making music before the Lord. And each of them, 288 in all, was an accomplished musician. Like, there's a lot of detail given in the Bible for God, through David and other kings, appointing musicians 
for the, the responsibility of directing God's people in worship. It's pretty cool. I don't know, I think it's really cool. That God has so designed it that we would use our voices and our musical skills to worship him, to lift his name up, to sing about him and the things that he has done. I wanna read to you one of my favorite psalms when it comes to worship. Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound. Any, any trumpet players in the house? Tanner, yeah. It's funny, so Tanner, well, Tanner, Tanner and I both get to lead worship. Um, that's probably where you see me most, but we both started with the trumpet, right? You started with the trumpet, or did you start with piano? Yeah, but we play the trumpet. Trumpet's a great instrument. There's, there's a, any band geeks at all? Or have, have you any spent any time in band? Okay, there was always a running joke, but it's absolutely true that trumpets are the best. Trumpet players are the best. They're the divas of the band world. Biggest egos. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just always been the case. But we'll say, did you know that the trumpet, Ethan, hear me on this. You should know this. The trumpet is referenced more than any other instrument in the entire Bible. So clearly it's the best, okay? <laughs> anyway, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. This is also the best because this is the one that's mentioned twice. Cymbals. Praise him with sounding cymbals, and then praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. We need more. More cowbells. Cowbells are not cymbals. <laughs> Pretty close. Just funny, and you know, side note, because I don't want to get too much into like, the style of worship, but God doesn't care about the style of our worship. For a generation or two ago that, that had a really difficult time with having drums in the worship service for the first time, thinking that it was the devil's instrument for some weird reason, Psalm 150 is like, no, play those cymbals louder. <laughs> There's defense right there, okay. But it says, it finishes, it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So what is it about singing? What is it about music that makes this so important, so powerful? Why do we make such a big deal out of this? Uh, there's a couple quotes I came across this week that have really... It's just been really cool for me to think about what is music, the gift that is music, because music is a gift, right? All things that God has given to us is a gift. Music, the very ability to sing, is a gift from God. It's beautiful. There's a guy named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, coolest name in the world, who said, music is the universal language of mankind. It's the universal language of mankind. And if you if you've ever been in a situation where you're in a different culture and they're singing a song, you can join in in that. I've seen musicians who can't speak anything to each other. You get in a room and they start playing instruments together, they can just jump right in and play along with each other. Then get a, like, music is the universal language of human beings. And then Jane Swan who was a professor at Westchester University in Pennsylvania, said, how is it 
How is it that music can, without words, evoke our laughter, our fears, and our highest aspirations? Because music is powerful. It's universal. Everybody has a favorite song. Everybody has a, a style that just evokes something in you, right? I think I shared this earlier this year in a different message, but um, God of Wonders by Third Day, that, that song played such an instrumental point or part of my life at, at the early point in my faith that those first three chords come out and I'm like, I feel it. I can feel something awaken in me when I hear that. It's just music. There's no words. How is it that it has that ability? So as we talk about language and the gift that it is for us and why do we do it at church, the first thing that I want to mention in this is that music is deeply, deeply expressive. It's deeply expressive. I mean, anybody make playlists for different moods? Yes, Ethan does. Yeah, a handful of hands. We do that. Like, okay, well, music can define a mood very easily. You can see, I mean, you can watch a movie in a different language and just hear the soundtrack and you know what mood they're trying to convey, right? It's deeply expressive, both for groups of people but also personally. We express ourselves through music. And I believe that because it is so universal and that anybody can, can join along in song, I also believe that music is a unifying language. It's unifying. Think about how much Jesus stresses unity in the Bible. For Jesus, unity is one of the most important things, period. He talks about it all the time. In John 17, 20 through 23, Jesus says this in a prayer. He's praying for his disciples at this moment. He says this in a prayer to his father. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, the ones that were following him then and there in that point in time, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Repetition. Repetition's key. When you see repetition in the Bible, it's like the exclamation point, okay? Jesus is emphasizing this all the more. He says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The two things that Jesus says will define his church, when the world looks at us as his church, this is the two things that they will see that will make it known that you are my disciples are that you would love one another and that you would be unified. Just the two things. Unity is a big, big deal, and the church has not done that well. We've really failed collectively, like Big C Church, churches all over the place. We bicker, we fight about every little thing. The style of worship to carpet, I mean, I haven't really been a part of the carpet debates, but I've heard about them. <laughs> it must have been a fascinating time in church history. <laughs> um, 
But we've divided over so many different things, and we are also so good at pointing across the row, even brothers and sisters in Christ. Just because we don't know them personally, we can point them and say, oh, no, no, your theology is wrong. Here, there, and there, and, and then this is the way that you do church, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. And, and, and because of that, like, we're, I don't know. We can write people off very easily. You know, I've met Christians that are, they, they feel like they're the heretic police. Like, it's their job to sniff out every single heretic that's walking the face of the planet. And they pick people they have never met, who they've never talked to, and Jesus never said, you're going to know that my disciples are, are my disciples because they can pick out a heretic out of a, any church in the world, you know? But when we get to unity, this emphasis of unity, what happens when we come to sing together in worship? Every single one of us in this room raises one voice. We say the same words at the same time. We are all collectively praising God in perfect unity. It is one of the most unifying acts, things that we do as Christians that brings us together. Especially when you can imagine, I mean, has anybody been to like a gigantic worship conference or something like that? I mean, in a big stadium setting? Big con- you know, if you've ever been to anything like that, it, there is something unbelievably powerful when you get an entire stadium full of Christians who do not know each other, singing at the same time, praising the same God. It's really cool, and it's unifying. Because as, many, as, many, as easy as it is for churches to find differences amongst ourselves, you could put almost every church in Boulder County in the same room, and we'll sing the same songs. And it's beautiful. Beyond that, I mean, it serves so many purposes for the church. But for me, that's one of the most beautiful things about why we do this every single Sunday is because it brings us as a local body together into closer unity. We sing the same words at the same time, and we praise our God together at the same time. Momentum builds that way. Um, I'm, I'm regularly convicted when I go to a, a football game like a Broncos game. I'm a big Broncos fan. If you've ever been to a Broncos game or an NFL game or something like that, you get into a gigantic stadium with 70 plus thousand people and it gets loud. People will, will scream, they'll yell, they'll, they'll cheer, they'll do this. They'll, and it's like, it's this sense of camaraderie, right? You look across and you see someone in a Raiders jersey and you're like, boo, everybody hates them together, right? Sorry, <laughs> sorry, William. <laughs> You moved to Colorado. <laughs> but, you know, like, they throw an incomplete pass, and the whole stadium goes, incomplete, all at the same time. It's, it's, it's fun. But when it gets down to, like, the end of the fourth quarter, and there's 20 seconds left, and your team's going for a drive uh, to, to go score, like, the stadium is going absolutely nuts over a bunch of grown men wearing tights throwing a ball around a field. It's a little embarrassing. Yeah, Brian just said it's embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing <laughs> when you break it down that way. But there's power in mass numbers. There's momentum that builds when you all raise your voices together in unison. Same thing when you go to a concert at Red Rocks. Red Rocks is a beautiful, beautiful concert venue. And when you all show up and, and there's 
thousands of people there all to, to view the same incredible musicians. There's power, there's so much power there. But here's the difference between a concert or a sports game and what we do on a Sunday morning. The difference is that at a concert or a football game, the crowds are the audience. The, the, the crowds, whoever shows up to come, they are the audience. They are the spectators. The event is meant for them. Like if you go to a concert, it doesn't really matter if you sing along. Most people do. They have a lot of fun with it. It doesn't matter if you sing along because the only thing that matters is, th is that you're entertained. And sometimes, I mean, we structure our worship in similar ways. Like there's a stage, there's, there's instruments, there's musicians. We're faith, I mean, you guys are in rows and you stand and you look at us, but the difference is that we raise one collective voice and God is the audience. So if you've ever wondered why we do worship this way, one, there's something beautiful about being able to express ourselves in, in a style of music that we're used to that we feel like, yeah, this resonates with me. This is how I like to, to sing. This is how I like to, to play music. And bringing that to God, there's something beautiful in that. But at the same time, we gotta stop seeing musicians and the band, especially like the, the big worship bands out there, big concerts. Like, it's not about the band. It's not about the worship team. The worship team functions more like a choir director. Like, you are not the audience. The band is not the performers. The band is more like a choir director. You are the performers, and God is the audience. There's a major, major difference between a concert and what we do on Sunday morning. And what that leads us to, to realize is that when it comes to singing together, worship is not about us, primarily. Like, God in his love and his grace and his faithfulness and his love for us, he allows us to partake in worship and we can feel something. We can feel the beauty and, 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 and um, connection that we may have with God. But at the end of the day, the goal isn't to walk out of here and be like, hey, what'd you think of worship? Oh, I thought it was really awesome. Like, that's, not the, that's not the point. It's not what we think about it that matters. What matters about, in worship is God, that he is receiving the praises that he is due because he's worth it. Colin and Rebecca opened up perfectly this morning with the call to worship. He's like, we worship because Jesus died for us on the cross. He accomplished our salvation. He, he accomplished the greatest miracle that the face of the world has ever seen, period. How can we not praise him, shout for joy, and sing, and express ourselves? It's about him first and foremost. Which brings me to the point that worship is also about obedience. Obedience is worship, right? I mentioned that. Like if, you, if God tells you to do something and you walk in obedience, that is a form of worship. But worship, musically, is also a form of obedience. It goes both ways. Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, starting in verse 17. He says, Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. It's clear, clear wisdom right there. Just, yeah. uh, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs amongst yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to, the, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. That's not, that's not good advice. 
Paul is saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? You praise your God. And you show your gratitude. And you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice what's not in this passage. The words, if you feel like it. It doesn't matter. I've, I've been in circles, and I've, I'm guilty of this too, where I've found myself in a section or a spot where I'm like, I'm having a bad day, a bad week, or like, I don't like the psalm that came on. I'm like, you know, I'm just not feeling worship, so I'm going to be content just to sit here with my hands in my pockets and listen. That's disobedience. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you feel it, because it, what matters is that God gets the praise that he deserves. It doesn't matter if you're a good singer or not. If you're a terrible singer... God wants to hear your voice too. How many, how many of your, yes, amen. If any of your kids, any of you who have kids, do they have like the most beautiful, perfect, polished voices in the world when they sing? No? No. But it's adorable, right? When your kids sing, especially at, at the age my kids are, it's just so cute. And you're like, oh, you're so pitchy and... You know, like, you don't know the song. You're making up words, but it's so cute. It's adorable. God looks at us as his children, and it doesn't matter what sound comes out of your mouth. It doesn't matter if you can't sing a, a, a tune or hold a pitch. Like, God just loves to hear your voice. That's it. He loves to hear your voice, and if you express yourself and bring the gift of your heart to him in song, he's, he's, he will always accept it. Paul says to make music in your heart. That doesn't just mean to feel the music, right? Making music in your heart, it means to sing from the center of your being. Right? We think about heart as the center of our feelings. In ancient, in ancient uh, Greek and Jewish culture, both together, the heart was kind of seen as the center of your will. Like my, my ch- the center of my choices, my will, the, that center of myself where my choices, my actions flow out of, that was the heart. So when you make music to Jesus in your hearts, it's, it's bringing everything that you are, the center of your being to him, your whole self, and making music to him with integrity. It's an act of devotion. I can tell you some of the most intimate, I love to interact with God intellectually with my brain. I love it. Um, some of the times that God has made himself so relevant to me in my life is when I learned this radical new concept in the Bible. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. But I can tell you some of the most intimate, raw, and meaningful experiences I've had with God is in worship. And yes, it's also, it's, it's very, very good and important that we do this together. One of the things I love to do, if you want to try this sometime this week, feel free, but Get in a room by yourself and crank some worship music and just let loose. <laughs> like, jump around, dance, sing, shout, whatever. Like, make yourself look like an idiot because no one's around you to, to judge you. <laughs> Those are some of the moments where I have felt so close to God. Like, I've had times in this room when you're not around. Um, <laughs> I can crank stuff in here and I'll run around. And I, there have been times where I literally just start crying. Because it's, there's, there's an intimacy to worship, to song, to bringing that artistic expression to God. Imagine if you're married and you, you, you date someone, you court someone, and, and as you're getting 
closer to marriage, you, you, have, you go on dates regularly, you're really getting to know people, you flatter each other, you give compliments, you're really wanting to impress the other person. Then you get married and you never go on another date again. Are you still married? Yes. But the devotion is, is, is lacking. It's the same thing with worship. When we worship God, it's an act of devotion that we get to bring to God to tell him how amazing he is to us. the hard thing about talking about worship as a worship leader is like, I want to talk about probably another 20 different points, but I don't have the time for that. So um, I want to end with this thought that, that music plays a pivotal role for us as a church. It's unifying. It unifies us as a church. One of the most important reasons why we do it. It unifies us, brings us together. It also teaches us. Um, I've heard that and it makes sense, I don't know how you can back this up with data, but you, you tend to learn more theology from the songs that you sing than the sermons that you hear. Because music is memorable. The hymn, Amazing Grace, has taught people for centuries about what Jesus did on the cross and what does that mean for us as sinners. It teaches us, it helps us to remember. Music is memorable, right? I'm going to try something. I'm going to put myself out on a limb here, okay? Finish this phrase. Ah, 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 ah. There we go. Cool. Good. I don't like singing without a guitar, so that was hard for me. Um, Y'all just said staying alive. Music is memorable. When you hear a tune, you can fit words to that tune. It helps you to remember. What it also does to us is it prepares us for the future. If you read in Revelation chapter 5, there's this amazing glimpse of all the heavenly beings, all these elders, all these believers worshiping God with one voice. It, that's our future. Our future is a future of worship. We will worship God throughout all of eternity. We've got to prepare ourselves for it, and that's what, what music does for us here as well. Um, Okay, I got a lot of thoughts. I'm just going to get to this. I'm going to close with a quote from Martin Luther, really, really amazing theologian. Um, we can thank him for a lot of, we can thank him for a lot. Um, but he says this about music. He, sa- he says, I wish to see all art, principally music, in the service of him who gave and created them. Music is a fair and glorious gift of God. I would not f- for the world forego my humble share of music. Singers are never sorrowful, but are merry and smile through their troubles in song. Music makes people kinder, gentler, more stead and reasonable. I am strongly persuaded that after theology, there is no art that can be placed on a level with music. For besides theology, music is the only art capable of affording peace and joy of the heart. And this is cool. The devil flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. That's a cool thought. When we sing, when we worship, we become more of who we are. We become more of the people that God has created us to be, and the devil flees from that. So Rock Creek Church, um, we stand. Um, We've said this here and there, but, but God is building this church 
in a way that it's really exciting. We've been around for a while, um, but God's doing something new, and we're just about to scratch the surface. We can see a little bit of it in the, in the lobby, just tearing up the carpet. We're getting ready for, it's not just a new building, but it's gonna be a new season for this church. And we've already seen a lot of that through COVID with um, the heartbreak of having to see some people leave and move to find work, but we've seen so much joy and seeing so many of you new people come, and, and God has brought you here to build something. So I just wanna point that out that that there's a really cool season coming for Rock Creek Church. I'm really excited to see what he's gonna do through that, but I firmly believe that one of the things that, that's gonna lead us into that new season is growth and worship. That is, if we as a church learn and take a new step out of our comfort zones and learn to praise God in new ways and to give him more of our hearts in, in the way that we express ourselves, then we're gonna see him work and move in ways that we couldn't possibly have anticipated. So we shuffled some things where we're gonna end with three songs today instead of two. So you're gonna have some extra time to practice some of these things, but try, try something new. Take a step. If you're, if you're someone who's not comfortable raising your hands, raise your hands, try it out. Because what is this? It's body language. Body language is expressive. It's important. It makes a difference. I've had times in my life where I'm singing and it's not until I actually raise my hands that all of a sudden I feel God hit me in a new way. So try raising your hands. Try singing out loud. If you need to drop to your knees and put yourself in a posture of surrender, if you need to go back out in the lobby and run around and dance, like we don't have any tambourines for you, but you can go dance. Try, try worshiping God in a new, new way. And don't worry about what the person to the left or your right thinks about you because it's about God. He's the audience. He is our audience, so let's give him a show. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that is music. We thank you for how you've crafted us as people. That you've given each and every one of us our very own instrument in our voices. Let us bring that back to you in devotion and expression that we would lift your name on high, that you would become the most important person in our lives over and over and over again, that you would remind us of what you've done for us on the cross and that we would be caught up in awe and wonder and just the miraculousness of what you've accomplished for us. So we thank you, Jesus, and we give you the rest of this morning.